Ian, we've got uh, Richard Brooks and Jay McKenzie on this week's podcast, and I, I just wondered if we could ask you for your opinion on the things they're going to be talking about. I'm afraid I won't be appearing on the podcast. Uh, I don't appear with other journalists. I see no need to sort of get involved in some sort of chaotic, messy debate with um, other journalists, so no. Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Page 94. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and in this week's episode, it's election fever time, so we have decided to ignore it. Uh, We're going to be ignoring the election completely this week. Instead, we're going to focus on two overlooked areas of British public life, finance and forensics. Later on in this episode, we're going to be talking to Jane McKenzie about the Forensic Science Service, a government body which was axed in 2011, and we're going to see just what's happened to it since then. But first, we hear a great deal about how Britain is going to make itself successful in the years after we leave the EU. One way that the government discusses quite frequently is by boosting trade all over the world – But when it comes to the details, things get a little bit murkier. Uh, One of the important arms of Britain's trading power is a very little-known body called UK Export Finance. It's part of the Department for International Trade, and it's designed to pump up British exports. But as Private Eye has covered, it has been guaranteeing deals of increasing dodginess all over the world. Richard Brooks has been writing about them for some years now, so I started off by asking him exactly what UK export finance is and just how it's supposed to boost British exports anyway. Here he is. The main way that uh, UK export finance, as it's now known, uh, encourages exports is to guarantee that the exporter will get paid. It either guarantees the company, for example, an arms manufacturer like BAE Systems, uh, that it will get its money from its customer, who might be a foreign government, or it will guarantee the bank that lends the money to the customer that it will get its money back. So it's kind of an insurance policy in case BAE Systems, for example, signs a big arms deal with another country and then that country collapses or they're unable to pay or a a bank defaults. yeah and the country can't raise the money, BE Systems will get its money, therefore the deal has kind yes, of gone through. Yeah, the exporter, like BAE, or the bank that's funded the whole thing will get its money. And it's particularly important for banks uh, because if their business is guaranteed, if a loan they make is guaranteed by a government such as the UK's, which is considered a an almost uh, riskless guarantor, then it doesn't have to use up as much of its capital that's on its balance sheet, and that's very precious for the banks. A state body that guarantees business is loved by the banks. Okay, so that all sounds good so far, as in British companies are being able to export safely. (laughs) Yes. But it also seems, it seems like a slightly unnecessary step to take. Well, it's, it's necessary because some of the customers for British exporters are what's known in the business as risky. Uh, (laughs) which translates uh, as dodgy in some cases. What sort of thing? Well, for example, exporting equipment to a developing country, military equipment, for example, which has to be negotiated with officials, politicians in that country, uh, is very susceptible to corruption. There have been some very famous cases involving companies such as BAE Systems. What you end up with in corrupt business is that certain well-connected people get very rich personally 
and countries end up with equipment they don't need and which can even even worse can inflame security threats and so on. You've only really mentioned military examples so far. Does UK yeah. export finance ever support yes, some mi- minor it. stuff like like salary or beetroot? <laughs> Is there, are there beetroot well, consignments so, going to Liberia that need to be guaranteed? I don't think it's ever guaranteed a, a, an individual crate of beetroot <laughs> going abroad, but it does guarantee contracts for equipment, for civil equipment. Engineering companies are big fans of UK export finance, big users of it. A company might be building a bridge somewhere in Africa and a guarantee from UK export finance will help that deal along substantially. So you've got risky situations which need to be hedged against and the British government's way of doing it is to guarantee these loans or these payments. That's right, yeah. The advantage is more trade for British companies. Correct. Are there deals that have gone ahead that wouldn't have done if these loans had not been guaranteed? I know that's an impossible question because obviously we don't know what would have happened. Almost certainly, almost certainly. Because it makes such a difference to the banks and the companies. The banks uh, will lend and the companies will pay, or even the customer will pay less interest for the money it's borrowing. So where's the problem here? Yeah, what could go wrong? (laughs) The problem is that for a long time it was sort of accepted that if you wanted to do business in these countries countries like in particular the Middle East, in particular Saudi Arabia, that you would have to grease a few palms. And the way you would do that would be to pay commissions to middlemen. Okay. (laughs) Now, a a commission, as you can guess, can cover a, a, a multitude of sins. There may be some genuine elements. There may be people on the ground who understand the the requirements uh who, who understand how to negotiate properly with a particular government uh, and you you can have a legitimate element to a commission but more often historically what what you get is commissions actually amounting to big bribes to the people who can make the deal happen so the senior officials uh often the senior politicians often the royal families who take millions and sometimes billions in the case of the BAE system's infamous Al Yamama deal and then squirrel it all offshore and buy themselves uh, 100-foot yachts and so on. Can you give us an example of one of those deals that you've written about in the eye? Uh, Well, we've written quite a bit recently about Rolls-Royce which uh, has just been fined £650 million. That's That's quite a lot of money. Yeah, and that was just for what's known as a deferred prosecution agreement. So it coughs up big fines um, in return for not being prosecuted uh, and promises to be good boy for a little (laughs) while. That investigation by the Serious Fraud Office covered dozens of individual contracts around the world, uh, many of which were found to be built on huge bribes to local officials and it was the company was described as endemically corrupt so let me just see if i've got this clear yeah uk export finance will for example guarantee yeah uh, a deal that rolls-royce does if they're exporting let's say aircraft engines yes now how does that money end up being squirreled away by corrupt government officials or by royal families usually what happens on a corrupt deal is that The company that is supplying the equipment pays a commission 
to right. an agent. Now, it gets its money back from the customer. So the commission doesn't cost Rolls-Royce, for example, anything because it gets it back in what it charges the customer. But let's say a particular government. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It will pay that commission typically to an offshore company, which will generally be run by the agent in some way, but will be ultimately owned by we don't know who, uh, and will distribute money among the influential officials and politicians and so on. And we've investigated a number of cases where that's happened. Okay. So in companies which have been paying these kind of commissions, that money has then been guaranteed by the British government. That's right. The whole contract has been guaranteed. So effectively, yes, the, the government's guaranteeing that these commissions will be paid as well. Right. Now, that turns out to be pretty serious because last year... A colleague and I, Christian Eriksson, and I looked at uh, a series of deals that UK Export Finance had guaranteed. We specifically asked for details of any commission payments which the companies have to disclose to UK Export Finance in order to get their guarantee. And in many cases, we found that there were some highly suspicious sounding payments being made in order to get the contract and UK export finance was effectively rubber stamping these by saying yes you can have your guarantee. In one case we found a company paying a 10% commission and the only explanation it gave on its application form for that was one word which was facilitation. Right. Now facilitation (laughs) what does that mean? Well it means making it happen and we know how you make things happen. Okay. And not only do we know how you make things happen, but the Serious Fraud Office does as well. And the Serious Fraud Office issues guidance which specifically addresses this point. I mean, it it does suggest that the person filling this form in wasn't too bright because if he (laughs) or she had looked at the Serious Fraud Office guidance, they would have seen that it says that a facilitation payment is a type of bribe and should be seen as such. So the person filling this form is effectively written bribe on the form. And UK Export Finance ticked it up. So he's effectively written the word bribe on a form and the UK government has guaranteed it. Not only have they guaranteed it, but they've turned a blind eye to their other responsibility, it seems, which is to report suspicious transactions to the Serious Fraud Office. Uh, We found that in more than 200 cases where there were commissions, some of which looked very suspicious, UK Export Finance had not referred a single case to the Serious Fraud Office. So it simply doesn't it appears, do its uh, corruption monitoring job, which is actually quite an important part of its job. So we've got all these rules in place to ensure that the deals that go through with other countries are free of corruption, and those seem to be being ignored. Yeah, I don't think you can ever completely proof the export guarantee system against all corruption. Uh, But you can look out for the serious stuff. Uh, Indeed, you have to. The law requires that UK Export Finance does that. After we had found that uh, there were so many cases of suspicious-looking commissions, we had a look through some known cases of corruption where the Serious Fraud Office had prosecuted much later on or other foreign governments had investigated. And we found a series of them where, over the years, UK Export Finance had uh, simply guaranteed the business. And then some, some years down the line, because these investigations take a long, long time, it had become clear that those deals were bent. So there was the series of Airbus contracts that we talked about. There were other companies as well. There's a 
well-known Brazilian company called uh, Petrobras, which is under investigation everywhere. It's as <laughs> bent as a nine-bob note. In fact, its system is known as the car wash, its bribery system. Uh, and UK Export Finance guaranteed a, a billion-dollar loan facility for it to buy UK goods. That turns out to be corrupt. And again, reports weren't made to the serious fraud office, even though that company was, you know, already had a reputation for being a bit dodgy. In fact, it seems that uh, UK export finance is, is pretty blind to its wider responsibilities. The government has committed through various international fora not to support fossil fuel production, yet we found again that UK export finance has guaranteed a whole series of fossil fuel contracts or contracts for equipment to dig up fossil fuel in contravention of big international treaties. So it's managing to escape all sorts of areas of official policy in the name of trade. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, in the name of making some money for good old UK PLC. There is a parliamentary committee looking at UK export finance, looking okay. at its performance, not specifically at the question of corruption, but just whether it does its job very well. It must, I would have thought, take all this into account, but we'll see. Yeah. And as this sort of stuff becomes much more important after Brexit, if, you know, if the trade of uh, rhubarb declines and the trade of arms to the Middle East increases... Yeah, well, we can we could see already that that's the way things are heading. You know, just look at Theresa May's business trips before the election. We're clearly very keen to get back in with the those who spend the billions on arms. So keen, in fact, that UK Export Finance, which isn't the best-known public body, I'm not sure many people have heard of it, gets a mention in the Conservative Manifesto, not the most detailed of documents. <laughs> uh, we will put UK Export Finance she said, which ensures that no viable UK export finance fails for lack of finance or insurance at the heart of the UK's trade promotion proposition. Right. Which is sort of management speak for this is how we're going to push business abroad. And yet it seems in a lot of cases to have been the facilitator and the guarantor of uh, bribery and corruption overseas. Yes, it does. It's It clearly has the evidence Dozens of cases show that it does guarantee corrupt deals. It doesn't know it does because it doesn't look. That seems to be the problem. See no evil. That's right. <laughs> read no evil, read no facilitation payments. Yeah, guarantee lots of evil. <laughs> Richard Brooks. Now, uh, Private Eye has been reporting in the last issue or two about a private forensics firm called Randox, where hundreds and um, possibly thousands of forensics test results have recently been called into question. Unfortunately, Randox and its troubles are symptomatic of a wider problem affecting the entire forensics industry and has been ever since the government axed the world-class forensic science service in 2011. Here is Jane McKenzie explaining exactly what went on at Randox. There are question marks over hundreds of samples from that lab from police forces all around the country because this lab was taking in samples from all over the place and this includes uh, people who are already serving jail time, cases that are upcoming and have now had to be adjourned while things are, are retested. And what's fortunate is that it's about the manipulation of the results, not the samples themselves. So the samples still exist to be retested by someone else. So this is a private firm, Randolph. This is a private company, yes. Okay. 
um, which is one of the many contractors who've taken over doing the testing of various kinds of samples for police forces or for defence teams. Sometimes there are cases in the civil courts that need evidence testing. And do we know how things went wrong at Randox? Do we know why these... and there's a criminal investigation ongoing, so we can't really go into the details of what's happened there. Okay, but what we do know and what we can say is that hundreds of these... Samples are going to have to be retested. Retested, yes. Okay. Yeah, it affects police forces all over the place. And the lab is in Manchester. The lab is in Manchester and is a lab we had written about under a different incarnation when it was doing um, drug and paternity testing for the family courts um, some years ago. And there were some serious issues they were having with uh, contaminated results at the time. Uh, in terms of allowing people access to their children, which were criticised by a judge. But then the lab changed incarnation. Was it bought by someone else? It was bought yeah. by Randox? Yes, it, okay. it was bought by Randox, um, but it's it's sort of as a going business. So it's the same lab, just under different ownership. So this lab has clearly potentially made hundreds of mistakes, and there's so much that's going to need to be ironed out. Is it possible that people are in prison now yes. who shouldn't be? Yes, it is. Yeah. Cases will have to be reviewed depending on the retesting process. But yes, since it largely relates to driving matters, there'll be people who have lost their licences and jobs because of this kind of thing. Right. The I's been writing about forensic science for a long, long time, uh, not least because we cover a lot of miscarriage of justice cases. And a lot of miscarriage of justice cases have hung on forensic evidence. So we've sort of had a very long interest in this time was all forensic testing was being done by the state so early early days there was the um, office of the government chemist and various police laboratories who who did work and they they, they developed an awful lot of the kind of forensic testing you see from fingerprint testing through dna testing all that kind of thing were done by a state body and that was called the Forensic Science That became Service. called the Forensic Science Service. Okay. It went through various incarnations. You, so you've got one body which does all the testing. Can do it independently. So it's not the police themselves testing things that they're seeking to balance a conviction on. Defence teams could also approach them for work to be done and so forth. How do we get from having the Forensic Science Service to having Randox? Well, governments of various stripes went through periods of thinking, oh, there's an asset we could sell off, or there's something which is doing a business service, so a police force is paying um, them to do a test. And some of them become very production line tests, so you need your DNA sample testing, it goes, it gets tested, the results come back. It looks like quite a saleable thing. So... The initial thing that was done was it was turned into a GovCo. So it became a company, but that was owned by the government. And it continued in that guise from 2005 until sort of 2010, 2011, when it started to be looked at again. And so when it's a GovCo, police forces are paying it with government money, taxpayers' money. That's right. Whatever you want to call it. So it's taking that money in, but it's also obviously spending the money on its work and on paying staff. And importantly, on research... Right. So that it can do better testing in the future. But yes, so it has clients both being the police, CPS, the defence sides and police forces elsewhere in the world were all using that company that was owned by the government. So now it's 2010 slash 11. Which is when it sort of starts being discussed that, oh no, it's losing money. And it was losing about... 
two million pounds a month, which ministers were sort of, this is terrible, this is a time of austerity, we could be saving two million pounds a month by not having losses. Compared to the scale of what they were doing, this really wasn't an awful lot for the taxpayer to be putting in to make good and better and better forensic science happen, especially because what the criminals are doing doesn't stop changing. You can't just stick with doing the same tests all the time. There's new things that need forensics doing. Okay. And as you say, it was world class. Yeah. Envy of lots of other countries which don't have decent forensics outfits. Yes. So the Forensic Science Service losing £2 million a month or alternative, having £2 million a month spent on it. Yes. So it was chopped? Yes. So they closed it down and said, that's fine. The private sector will take all the burden of this work. (laughs) (laughs) But how does that how did that manifest itself? Because there were private firms before, I guess, doing forensics. There were absolutely. Um, Some of them were quite keen to start sort of taking on some of the forensic science services work, especially the kind of really production liney things like doing maybe drug testing or basic chemistry. We can tell you the results. They were quite in favour of taking on that work less in favour of taking on the maintaining the enormous archive of back cases or sort of developing really fiddly and complicated tests that take staff time and cost money. It is fascinating the way the decision was made. And we reported this in 2011. So the advice to privatise and to disband the FSS, basically, was the recommendation of a man called Gordon Wasserman, who himself had run a private forensic science company yeah. and had worked as a, a civil servant under the previous Conservative government and at that time instigated the charging of police services for forensics. So it was, he was kind of opening the door to privatisation or commercialisation mm. a little bit. But it doesn't seem to have had a really thorough review before the decision was taken. Uh, indeed. And some of the people who weren't um, consulted is, a, is an interesting point because the, the Home Office Chief Scientific Advisor wasn't asked for their view. Who they were choosing to listen to um, was, was very telling. So it was chopped. Mm-hmm. Private sector takes the strain? To some extent. A lot of police forces also took work in-house rather than go to a private company. They decided, well, we'll just test things here instead. Do they have to set up their own labs to do that? Yes. I mean, some of them already had labs that they could do the very sort of quick things, and then only if they needed to go to the next stage, they were sending it to the FSS. So the Metropolitan Police, because it's so huge, has always had a science facility. But then again, there'll be some smaller forces which will have had to set up shop. Yeah. And we're having to then send all of their work out to private companies. You mentioned that the the FSS, as it was, was independent. So obviously, if the police really want to get a conviction, you know, they can't do anything. They they just get yeah, the it's results. it's independent of the police. Yeah. They're just going to give you the results. And they'll come and give evidence in court as independent experts, too. Has that led to any difficulties since the FSS uh, was disbanded? Or is there a potential risk that there could be? Uh, yes, because a lot more police are doing a lot more in-house um, testing. Yes, there becomes a question mark over you know who is the independent expert that's going to tell the jury, um, well, we tested it like this, and these are the faults of the testing process, and these are the degree to which we can't tell this. I mean, there's a really strong tendency of juries to believe in 
um, scientific evidence. If if somebody says, well, you know, we tested this and it was a match, it's very difficult to also get through their heads. A match means it's maybe like 40, 60 as to whether it was really them. Juries do like science evidence. Yeah. Because of CSI. Yes. Um, (laughs) And do we know anything about the way the cost has changed in the last six years? What forensic science is doing has changed massively in the last six years. In some ways, the market has massively shrunk for the kind of old-style biology-chemistry testing services. For instance... Because burglary has become massively unfashionable, um, (laughs) there aren't the same kind of finding DNA traces around somebody's house tests needing doing it the same way. Because that was certainly one of the big sort of jobs in, say, the 1990s. When I was a local paper reporter, I remember covering the first case that I'd sort of heard about DNA evidence having caught somebody and it was a burglar who while burgling had been having a smoke dropped the cigarette butt and they got the DNA from his saliva and uh, everybody in the courtroom was all like ooh very CSI (laughs) (laughs) but that that kind of case isn't sort of nearly so much of a part of the work of forensic science anymore and it's far more digital forensics so it's taking apart a mobile phone or a laptop and looking at it's a more computer science than biology. Is that still forensics if you're That's, not going through someone's saliva? It is. <laughs> that is digital forensics. Okay. And that has become a much bigger part of the field now. And a lot of types of crime have shrunk. So there is less testing, less of the production line testing. So the private business side of things has shrunk and firms are finding it quite difficult to be able to provide the work. And so what happens when a private firm, for example, goes out of business? They've presumably got an archive of the local area or everyone who's put work through their firm. Yeah. And this is something that was flagged up in the House of Commons uh, Select Committee last year, was that there is a risk where lengthy data sets that have been in private companies' hands are no longer available if that company goes under. As I recall, there isn't a legal provision for that to be sent somewhere else to be held on to. If only there was some kind of cross-national body which collected all the data sets from everywhere. Indeed. Well, maybe (laughs) there will be again, because um, at the moment, the National Council of Police Chiefs is trying to push for a national joint forensics and biometrics service. It sounds weirdly familiar. It does. (laughs) (laughs) But they are pushing for the sort of rebuilding of a a national body that can oversee the forensics work. Oh, my goodness. So the whole thing, if that happens, will have been for nothing. It will be a a massive cycle of nonsense and overspending on things that uh, could have all continued being done properly and sort of developed in response to the needs of the criminal justice system but instead it's been more about the needs of government to look like it was privatizing things to save fiddly tiny amounts of money jane mckenzie that's it for this week's episode of page 94 we will be back again next time with another episode Uh, until then my thanks to my guests richard brooks and jane mckenzie and if you would like more of the stories that we have been talking about before the next episode you can get them all in private eye it's on news turns now and it's a very good read thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time goodbye